0: All right, six thirty. We'll go ahead and get started. Thank you for being here. We were just talking about how good the enchiladas were. Very good, very good. And first time to make that sauce. Think about that. First time to make the sauce. Made it. Everybody liked it. Way to go. All right. I'll uh, pray for us, and we'll get going. Uh, Father, thank you for the evening. Thank you for the the meal that we've had and shared and fellowship. Uh we, we lift up our time here as we open your word and look at the Psalms. And we once again want to pray for all the activities going on around the building. And just lift up the next couple of weeks. It's exciting times around here as we celebrate 50 years. And then uh, look to the future of what you're going to do over the next 50 years. And uh, whatever it is, we just want to be faithful and honor you in all of it. And so uh, use us for that purpose. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are in the Psalms. And I'm going to start out with a question. What are some phrases, verses from the Psalms that you particularly love or stand out to you? Because the Psalms have a lot of, there's a lot of verses and phrases and images that we love that come from the Psalms. Yes, ma'am? There you go. Lord is my shepherd. Right on. I shall not want. That's good. That's good. That's absolutely. That's at the top of the list. Yeah. That's good. Steadfast love. Steadfast love of the Lord never changes. Yeah, that's good. And a lot of the psalms we know from songs that we sing, right? Okay. Somebody else uh came up to me on Sunday and was singing that. I'm not sure I've ever heard that one. I shall not be moved. Holy but good. I was looking to see if he was here tonight. He sometimes is here, the guy who was sitting. I guess not. Right. Any others that stick out to you? Yeah, create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. Yeah, I know a lot of them from the way that I learned them from Psalms. Yeah, yeah, right on. Any other that come to mind? Phrases, themes, images?
1: Yeah. Lifter in my hand. Yeah, rock. Right.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. It's poetry. And I think a lot of times we kind of... Most Many of us are not big poetry people, but 25% of the Bible is poetry. And so if we're going to be serious about the Bible, we've got to be somewhat interested in poetry, right? Um, here's, some that, here's some that I wrote down. The Lord is my shepherd. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Be still and know that I am God. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Created me a clean heart. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And, of course, lots of others. Um, Let me ask this question. I mentioned on Sunday the idea of praying the Psalms. It's something we've talked about before. I'm just curious if that's something anybody does or has tried since Sunday or anybody willing to share if that's a helpful discipline that you, you utilize. Oh yeah? Oh, good. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Have you been going through a particular psalm? Just start with one? Yeah. Yeah. Well, way to go. I've heard of some people who will... try trying to think how it works. Some of you may know better than me. It's like, you know, one through 30 days of the month. And then each day, like day one, you read one and six and that kind of thing. And then by the end of the month, you potentially have read them all. So there's different... There's different methods and systems, not one right way. Any other thoughts on that, praying the Psalms? Okay. So, as we said, a lot of the Bible's poetry, the Psalms, longest book of the Bible. So, understanding some poetry is important if we're going to be people who read the Bible and take it seriously. So, I made the argument one of the ways to read and make sense of it is to recognize these different types of psalms, and as I mentioned on Sunday, they're not hard and fast categories, but I think they're helpful categories, patterns. And by the way, I was talking to my kids. Isn't this the way that we've pretty much learned everything? You know, I was asking them. In your school, when you learn, do you learn pat- patterns, classification? It's like when you think about it, that's that's a lot of what education is learning different groups, classifications, that kind of thing. And then you see patterns, association, yeah. And then you see patterns, this is the normal pattern, and then you learn when there's a break in the pattern. Oh, this is fascinating, there's a break in the pattern. So uh, I'm going to go through the types of psalms, and you're welcome, I changed up the psalms, so we'll use different psalms tonight than the ones we use on Sunday. So you'll hear me say different things tonight. All right, so the first one is praise psalms. I'm going to skip the wisdom. To be honest with you, there's not a ton of wisdom psalms. There's a ton of wisdom literature in the Bible, not a ton of wisdom psalms, and different people classify them differently. But there's a lot of praise psalms. So we're going to talk about praise psalms. They're pretty common. And the praise psalm we're going to look at is Psalm 8. It's one we're very familiar with, I think. And once again, I think we're largely familiar with it because of another song that uses this line, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So if you remember the praise psalms, we said there's really two characteristics, could say three. Uh, There's a call to praise, and then there's the reason for the praise, and then there's one I didn't mention, but... There's further calls to praise. Normally, it'll work like that. I, I I praise you. Praise the Lord. Here's why. Praise the Lord. That's that's a pretty typical pattern. Um, so in Psalm eight, verse one, O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So um, that's a kind of a. It's kind of an implicit call to praise. He's not. He's not saying, you all call on the. You all praise the Lord, but he's He's praising the Lord. So it's kind of an implicit. And then, of course, it gets repeated in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So there's the call to praise and the repeated the repeated call to praise at the end. And then the bulk of the psalm is, is why, the reason. And I mentioned on Sunday, it usually boils down to one of two things, essentially, because he's the creator and he's the redeemer. And in this psalm, I like to say the reason in this one is because he is majestic, and yet he is mindful. Majestic yet mindful. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So you are majestic, other than, holy, creator, and yet... You're mindful, you're thoughtful, you think of me, you think of man. What is man that you are mindful of him? And so the whole psalm is really, it's going between these two extremes. He's majestic, and yet he's mindful. He's big, and yet he's near. He's far away, and yet he's right here with us. And So the whole psalm, that's the essence of it. So for example, chapter, uh, Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord... Our Lord. And even right there, Lord, all caps, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh. He is who He is. He will be what He will be. He's majestic. He's Yahweh. And yet, He's our Lord. He is who He is, and yet He's ours. Our Adonai. My Lord. So there's the... He is what He is, and yet He's, he's ours. He's personal. Uh, chap, uh, verse 3. Actually, uh, let's look at verse 1. Lord, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? You have set your glory above the heavens. So there's, his glory is way out there. His glory is above the heavens, beyond. And we're supposed to think about how big the universe is. And God's glory is everywhere. And it, like we're just tiny, small. He's massive. But look at the next line, verse 2. Yet out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy. So now we go to the little baby who's crying. In some way, God is glorified by the little baby. And Jesus, of course, referenced this, right? When they said, tell your disciples to be quiet. And He said, out of the mouth of babies and infants, God has ordained praise. So God is glorified beyond the heavens, as far as you could go, He receives glory there. And from the mouth of a little tiny crying infant, God has ordained praise. Far away and yet near. And look at uh, verse 3. When I look at your heaven, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So where's he taking us? Way out. The moon, the stars. Um, which by the way, uh, when Kenneth, when they, when they, Put a man on the moon for the first time. Kennedy invited world leaders to to write something or give something to the astronauts to put on the moon. And the Pope at the time, maybe Pope Paul VI, he he put he wrote was written down and taken to the moon. So right now on the moon, there's a copy of Psalm Eight. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what language is written in, but um, but it's there. You know, this 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 idea. That, you know, the moon in some sense to us, seems like forever away, and yet it's relatively close compared to light years away. But God has established it all, created it all, the work of his fingers, and therefore, verse 4, here's the contrast. What is man that you are mindful of him? Like, Who are we? Why do you think of us? What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And now we have a description. Verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And that's the word Elohim. So there's a debate. Is it angels? Is it God? The heavenly beings? The point is God has made us and set us on the earth, crowned us with glory and honor. Verse 6, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. So there's something there's something about humans, people, being given dominion over the creation that, that illustrates and demonstrates the glory of man, mankind. God designed it this way. You've, you have put all things under His feet. Verse 6. Remember, this is an ideal picture. This isn't, Sometimes not all things are subjected under our feet, are they? Sometimes the creation dominates us and fights back, and that's a part of the fall. But this is the way God designed it. This is the way He created it. He put us in charge of all things. And the sheep and the oxen and the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So we're reminded here, people have value and dignity. All people, just by, by being born created in the image of God, all people are image bearers, created with glory, meant to reign and rule over the creation. And God's glory is in that. It's not like we're elevating... Man, like, look at how great he is. It's like God, God created man with a lot of glory that's supposed to ultimately point to him, ultimately reflect him. My, I kind of got into a little debate with my kids not too long ago. They were, I don't know how I got brought up. They were talking about the idea of there being life on another planet. And I was just like real confident, like, no, there's not. And they're like, how do you know there's not? And uh, I was like, there's not. God created the world. And people, uh, you know, bear his glory, and we're in some way kind of the centerpiece of all of creation. And you know, now if I turn out to be wrong, and there's some plant life or something uh, somewhere, okay, I'm wrong. But I just—it's not—it doesn't—it doesn't doesn't square with biblical theology, where God creates the world, and He creates it as a habitat for man and women. Right? By man, I mean mankind. Got to be really careful these days. persons. (laughs) Persons <laughs> right. um, he created it for us it's it's designed for us right not not for us for our own sake, for us for his glory but uh but it's it's a good thing and and God was mindful of us, he's majestic, powerful, present everywhere, and yet mindful of us to to place us in a position uh where we are in charge and uh And that should, that should humble us. Now, one question that's always good to ask is, you know, okay, as Christians, how do we read this? Right? Because this is a Psalm that's old, and at the time it was written, there weren't followers of Jesus per se. So as followers of Jesus, how do we read Christians? Is there a Christian take on it? And, you know, I'd point out a couple of ways. One, Jesus is truly God, truly man. So in the one person of Jesus you have deity god and yet you also have man and so these two these two ideas majestic yet mindful come together in this incredible way the incarnation in the person of Jesus we have both he's god speak and the storms listen and he's he's man he weeps and grows in wisdom and stature and favor with god and man so both of these come together in a powerful, incredible way. Another thought that comes to my mind is that Jesus is the, the 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 man described in Psalm 8 in a way that none of us are. Because we live in a fallen world, because we've sinned, we don't have perfect dominion over creation. It fights back, and sometimes it wins and we lose. You think about earthquakes, and you think about sickness, and all kinds of things. There's all kinds of ways that the creation defeats us. And it, it, that's not the way God designed the world. He designed the world for us to rule and have dominion. And when Jesus comes to the earth, Jesus is a picture of what humanity is supposed to be. And the miracles are demonstrations of his his dominion over the creation. So he had to turn water to wine. He has the ability to heal a sick person. What, and when he does that, it's just simply humanity, the way humanity is supposed to be. It's not only a picture of his divinity, it's a picture of humanity. Be, being Saul, the the man of Psalm eight is who Jesus is, and so we we read Psalm eight with a Christian understanding, and it it can it can point us to Christ in that way. Um, by the way, Hebrews two nine references and applies it to Jesus. We see who Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death. For everyone. So let me pause and see if there's any thoughts or questions on Psalm 8. Okay, now I'm going to ask this question. Uh, psalm 8 is... Me- I'm, u- I'm merely using Psalm 8 as an as an example of a praise psalm. So now let's just talk about praise psalms generally. What are some principles or some truths we can draw from the fact that we have these praise psalms? We are given praise psalms... They typically include a call to praise, reason for praise. He's the Creator. He's the Redeemer. Further calls to praise. What are some principles we could draw out from praise psalms in general that we just learn about God, learn about ourselves, learn about life? What do you think? Okay. Yeah. The praise psalms can describe the attributes of God so we can learn something about who God is, through the praise psalms. Yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts about what we can learn just in general from praise psalms? Yeah, that's good. Learn how to praise. Because we're so arrogant, we think, I know how to do this. (laughs) Or I'll just do it in my own way. Or I'll just be real creative. No, God has shown us how. Just do it the way he says. And teach yourself and discipline yourself to worship him the way he wants to be worshiped. It's good
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yes.
0: Right? right. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point. God put us in charge to be good stewards, and there tends to be two extremes that we tend to go to. One extreme is being a poor steward and just wasting it, which we're not supposed to do. Another extreme is to elevate it to a point where it's not supposed to be elevated, and all of a sudden we can start worshiping it and valuing it more than we value people. And so that's when you get to a point where we're going to protect whales before we protect babies and wombs. And you say, well, this is just crazy. So you're right, both extremes. But there's another extreme over here that's just, we certainly want to be good stewards of our own, our own stuff and God's stuff that he's put us in charge of. And so there's a biblical view and then there's these two extreme, (laughs) extreme views. Good point. Any other thoughts on praise Psalms?
1: Mm. right on very
0: good, good point, yeah, I think uh, that kind of reminded me of just we we are created for the purpose of worship and in particular worship of him, and the praise psalms remind me of that, you know, and even if I don't feel like it or even if uh you know, I feel a little more like lamenting, maybe. It's like, yes, there's a time and place for lament, but there's also a time and place to praise God. This is who you are, it's what you're here for, it's what He wants, so praise Him. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right on. That 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 made me think of this point and that is I think it's interesting that it's not like the, I think if if we were arranging the psalms if I'm I'd have a tendency to say here's the lament psalms here's the praise psalms here's the thanksgiving psalms and I'd group them together you know but in the book of psalms they're laid out where it's like you might get a lament and then the, the turn of page and you might get a praise and it's a good it, I think there's something about that the way the way they're put together um which can be helpful to remind me that it's that there is there sometimes I to just praise God right now, and this is what you're created for mhm
1: right, right, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. Right, 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 yeah. And then when you throw in that he is mindful, this is, wow. If I if I if I get this, he's worthy just cuz he's majestic, just cuz he is who he is. Therefore, praise him. And then when I factor in and he's mindful, he's creator and yet he's we are his people and he cares for us. Wow. Okay, good stuff. Any other thoughts on any of that? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's good. We pray Psalms help us acknowledge He is Lord. Now, Very good. Okay, we're going to transition to lament Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm 130 if you want to turn there.
1: Psalm one thirty.
0: I don't know why I just thought about this, but the I mentioned the plural and the singular psalm versus psalms. The other one, big one, is the Book of Revelation. You always hear people say revelations. We're going to turn to Revelations four. All right. See, think about that. A person from Arkansas talking about grammar. <laughs> there's a little irony in that, right? All right. Psalm 130. Um, lament Psalms have a couple of different characteristics. There's a cry for help. Cry for help. There's the reason for the there's the reason or the problem. And we said the problem can sometimes be, you know. Himself, me. Sometimes he complains about God, and sometimes he complains about his enemy. And then we said, "There's usually some ray of hope, some solution." So let's let's look through Psalm 130 and point out these characteristics. Uh, Psalm 30, 130, verses one and two: "Out of the depths, cry to you, O Lord! O Lord, hear my voice! Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas." For mercy. So, we don't know what is the particular situation that he's going through. But he says, out of the depths. It's, the image I have in my head is sort of this cave. I can't help but think about the the miners in the cave in Chile. Uh, stuck in there for days. And, and it, 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 It's a metaphor. Down in the cave. And we don't know what the situation was. And I think sometimes that's good to not know. Because it reminds us this is universal, this is timeless. If we knew exactly what the situation was, it may not help us to apply it to our own situation. Right? So so we can apply this whatever situation we're going through, whether it's relational issues, health issues, you know, the list goes on and on. What is out of the depths, when I'm in the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. So here he is crying, out of the depths. Uh, the second characteristic is the problem. Why? why? Why is he crying? What's wrong? And and he mentions verse three. Oh, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So the problem he identifies is actually sin, iniquity, sin. So in this particular psalm, he's himself. My sin is the problem. Um. So, and I think this is, I think it's good. I think it's helpful to recognize when we are down and out, when we are in the cave, it's good to remember why why are we ultimately why do we experience these kind of things? Because we live in a fallen world. Why do we live in a fallen world? Because we sinned against God. So everything, everything we experience ultimately is because of sin. Now that's different. That's a little different than I'm experiencing this because I sinned. Like a one-to-one correlation. We said that was the problem with Job's friends. They were trying to find the one-to-one correlation. You must have sinned, and therefore you're in this situation, and if you'll just identify the sin, repent, then you'll get out. So I'm not saying that at all, or else I'd be absolutely going against everything we said when we looked at Job. So I'm trying to not, I'm trying to follow Job, but also say, I think there's a time and place to say, experience the fallenness because of us. And so I don't know, is that a difficult tension to, is that a difficult balance or do you think we can we can hold these two things these two truths in balance what do y'all think any thoughts on it right Right. Yeah, that's good. Uh, if you should mark iniquities, he's talking generally here about iniquities. He's not necessarily talking about a specific sin, which I do think Job's friends are like, you, you must have done something in particular. Yeah. Um, notice the solution. He turns to the solution pretty, quick. uh, verse four, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So there's, there's a ray of hope with God, there's forgiveness. He knows it. He knows it's true. God forgives. God restores. So there's some confidence here. I think it's an interesting phrase. You forgive so that you may be feared. Do we normally think of those two things? God forgives so that I might fear Him. I don't think we normally think about that. Right? How would you explain that to someone? God forgives you so that you'll fear Him. Yeah, respect, honor. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a translation difference, but it's, I think it, it's, it's making an interpretation that the idea here is this respect, honor, fear. It's not a, I'm afraid I go run into the bed. It's more of a, God forgave me and now I'm gonna honor him. Um, okay, so there's a, there's another problem that's mentioned in the psalm. In addition to the fear, I'm sorry, in addition to the forgiveness of sin, Um, Look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His Word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for... So I think this is a second problem, and that is, He's still waiting. I've recognized sin, with God there's forgiveness... But I'm still in the depths, I'm still in the cave, I'm still waiting, like I know there's forgiveness, I know there's hope, I know there's a solution, but I'm still waiting to kind of experience the to experience the fullness of that restoration and so he's he's still waiting it's and that's why it's a lament psalm. if he said for forgiveness, God forgave me, and now I'm out of the cave, it would be a thanksgiving psalm, but it's a lament psalm because I'm still waiting. I know there's forgiveness, but Boy, I'm looking forward to feeling it and experiencing it in a way that I, it's more tangible than what I'm currently experiencing. Right? And so he I think we can glean a, some lessons from the psalmist on what to do while you're still waiting. You're in the cave, you know the truths, you're still waiting for the deliverance. Look, for example, in verse five, he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. So he's looking to God's word, he's hoping in God's word while he waits, so there's a key for waiting. look to God's word uh, another key verse six he says more than watchmen for the morning and interestingly, he says it twice. It's just uh, just a poetic tool to, to to bring emphasis, and I think it's i think it on one hand it illustrates. His despair, you know, you think about a watchman at night supposed to wait and look for enemies and it's 3 o'clock in the morning and it's 4 o'clock in the morning and your eyelids are getting heavy and it's 4.30 and you're like, is this ever going to end? You know, is, this, is the sun ever going to come up? And it's, that's, that's how he's describing a situation. Like, I'm, I'm waiting and it's, it's not happening. But he's confident. Like, the sun's going to come up at some point. This is going to happen. So there's a confidence. So there's an honesty, like, I feel like it's never going to come, but then there's a confidence, it's going to come. You know, The sun always rises, and so there's a confidence. While I wait, I wait confidently. And then I think another point I'd I'd bring out here is verse 7, where he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. So he turns his attention to other people and is telling them, put your hope in the Lord while he's still in the depths. Sometimes when we're in the depths, it's like, it's all about me. I just got to get my stuff together. I can't worry about other people. I'm down here in the depths. It's about me. But the psalmist here, while he's in the depths, he's calling on other people. Oh, Israel, you hope in the Lord too. I'm going to hope in the Lord. I'm down and out. I'm in the cave. Save me. And at the same time, he's doing evangelism and telling people to put their hope in the Lord. So I think we, I think we learned some lessons of how to wait while we're in the cave, while we're in the depths. Uh, any thoughts about Psalm 130? Anything that we've talked about here? All right, let me ask this question. Do you think it's significant that a third of the psalms are lament song? Do you think there's some lessons or truths to be learned from this? Yeah. There's a lot of lament in our lives, and the psalms kind of reflect that. And I guess at some level, it's like that's okay. That's kind of par for the course. Sometimes we think of those seasons of lament as this is what's this is abnormal. And if I can just get through this, then everything will be great. And it's like, well, <laughs> you get through it, but then there may be another one just right around the corner. Just like there's another lament psalm right around the corner.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it shows us that crying out and lamenting is not only okay, but good even. Yeah, yeah. right on. What if there was like 149 praise psalms and one lament psalm? Am <laughs> like, I supposed still lament like one out of 150 times? You can lament a third of your life. <laughs> to, yeah that's true well that's also an interest that you know we all we all suffer everybody suffers just as a living in this world but there are people who suffer more than others and some people really go through a lot of tragedy in their lives and um that's a good that's a good thing to know and be reminded of and recognize that
1: Right. I know, is There's something to be said about. If i I not I don't have to all to myself. I can out there. Right. right. Right on, right on,
0: yeah, well, tell us what it is, and we'll we'll look it up afterwards. I'll wait for you, okay, very good, very good, yeah, thank you for sharing that Wait for you we'll we'll all look it up after the class, right all right, um. Yeah, what, what's the, I, I just kind of, uh, the answer is kind of implied in the question, but what's the significance that I think all of the lament, lament psalms at some level at least have some line of hope. None of them are like 100% lament. They all have some, you know, what, what, what's the significance there for us?
1: Right. 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 Yeah, it's good.
0: Good. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. We're going to transition to a Thanksgiving psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 30. I can't help I just think Thanksgiving I just think turkey and dressing that's what Thanksgiving is all right as I mentioned on Sunday I mentioned again thanksgiving psalms are sort of a combination of these two it's a praise but it's a specific type of praise praise because I was in a situation where I lamented but then God heard me and rescued me and so now therefore I'm praising him so it's kind of, in some ways, you could put it as a subcategory of praise songs. And that, that is an illustration of how these categories are not hard and fast. But notice the call to praise in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. Um, so I will extol you. I will praise you. Notice the reason, verse 2. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. So that's how you know it's, it's, it's not a lament because it's in the past tense. I cried, past tense, you have healed. So he's at a point now where he's been healed. And the indications, or one of the characteristics of this Thanksgiving psalm is to kind of ask the question, what happened? And sometimes we know, sometimes we don't know, sometimes it mentions it, sometimes it doesn't. But this particular psalm, I like it because it tells us what the problem was that got him into the cave that he's now glad that he's out of. Look at verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I'll never be moved. By your favor, O oh Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. So he apparently got to a point where he was arrogant, and he said, I shall never be moved. He kind of put himself in God's position, and then God knocked him down, but then God raised him back up, and now he's praising God and writing this psalm because God brought him back up. Now, we believe it's a psalm, you look at the title, it says a psalm of David, there's two places where David really messed up in his life. I'm sure there were others, but there's two that are recorded that we know of that are classic. The first one, of course, is with Bathsheba. So is it possible that this is a reference to that? I think it's more likely, however, that this is a reference to the second big problem when David counted his troops and they, they encouraged him not to, and he said, no, I'm going to, and it was a kind of arrogance. I want to know how many people are under my which, by the way, was the same thing that uh, Herod wanted to do, which is why Mary and Joseph had to go to uh, Bethlehem because he wanted to have a census of how many how many people do I have. Um, so David counts the troops. As a result, God kills 70,000 of his troops. 70,000. What if you were responsible for the 70,000 people? And then David interceded and asked for God to have mercy, and God did. And God said, I want you to build an altar in this place. So he did, and that altar, the place, became the place of the temple. And then notice the title of this, the heading of this psalm, Psalm 30. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. Perhaps as they're dedicating the temple for the first time when it's built, they're looking back and remembering the history of the temple, why it was built here, the altar that was built, David's sin. Perhaps there's something here that's like, here we have this big temple, glorious temple, and we might be inclined to be kind of big on ourselves, full of ourselves, right? We got the temple, we got God. And they're reminding themselves through this psalm, David thought like that before, (laughs) didn't go well for him, and that's how... That's why we have a temple in this particular place, and so perhaps at the dedication of the temple they're reminding themselves, "Let's not be too arrogant and of course that doesn't that humble spirit doesn't last too long uh, lasts till about David's son Solomon, as we've talked about before uh, but interesting, you know is that exactly what's happening? I don't know, but possible and look at the end of the psalm verses eleven. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So it's a praise song because God turned his mourning into dancing and his sackcloth into gladness. So, a question for you. It's an easy question. Can you think of some examples of songs that we sing, hymns that we sing, songs that we sing that are kind of thanksgiving in nature in the sense of I was down and out, I cried to you, you heard my cry, and now I was lost and now I'm found. Can you think of some uh, other examples of songs that we sing that kind of follow this pattern? Yeah, the kind of the classic one. Any others come to mind? Never once? Did we ever walk alone? Yeah, that's good. Count your blessings? Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. I'm going to transition. Everybody's thinking through songs in their head. Well, if you think of one, just shout it out. Right. <laughs> I'm going to transition. We're going to go to kingship psalms. Kingship psalms, as I mentioned on Sunday, this is a, a theme that we're really emphasizing as we go through all the... Because, once again, we believe there's one ultimate author, one unifying theme... And so this is kind of the theme that I've really chosen to lean into. I'm not necessarily arguing this is the theme, and if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. It's just like, this is clearly a major theme in the Bible, so let's lean into it. Um, And, by the way, we have some kingship psalms. And some of those kingship psalms emphasize just God's the king. So, for example, let's look at 24. Notice it's it's just largely about the fact that God's the King. Uh, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. I, I grew up memorizing the NIV, so I just sometimes you I, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and the full, the world and those who dwell therein, for He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So it's just kind of obvious. This is a song about God's the King. Some Psalms, on the other hand, are kingship Psalms because they talk about the human king, the king of Israel, David. And a lot of the Psalms are about David or written by David or for David and they mention that in the title i think something like half of them um so there's some there's some psalms that are you know and psalm 2 psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that gets referenced and quoted a lot where jesus says my god my god why have you forsaken me uh psalm 10 is a is is another one and let's let's look at it psalm 110 in a lot of ways this is This is the one that gets referenced the most in the New Testament. Psalm 110, something like 27 references from the psalm in the New Testament. Um, Let me read it, and then we'll kind of go through and talk about where it's referenced in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb in the morning. The youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And so a lot of people commented, you know, this just has a future. there's a king coming who's going to do these things. It doesn't, in a lot of ways, it doesn't happen under David. I mean, it happens to a certain extent. So it's like prophecy in this way. It's partially fulfilled by David, but it can't be fully fulfilled by David because there's all kinds of descriptions and things happening here that just don't ever happen with David or any other king for that matter and can only be explained by happening through Jesus Christ and even then having not yet fully happened through Jesus. We're still waiting for these things to happen one day when Christ returns. And so... Let me just go through, just verse 1 alone. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus quotes this, and it's, it's, it's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So we'll just look up one of those three. Let's look at Matthew. So keep your finger in Psalm, and let's look at Matthew. Matthew 22.
1: Verse forty-four.
0: Actually, I'm going to start reading verse forty-one. And actually, even before that, it's great. <laughs> Where do I start? On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Which two commandments? Love, love God, love your neighbor. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So. He's got Old Testament in mind. Now, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, By the way, let's just pause there. David in the Spirit. What's he talking about? David writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? How is it then that David in the Spirit, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, I right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus interprets it. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, not from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. (laughs) He's like, I'm done with you guys, let me give you this little riddle, and they can't answer. Because if they say David has a son who's greater than David, then they've just said it could potentially be you. Uh, But if they say, no, David doesn't have a son who's greater than him, okay, well then what do you do with Psalm 110, where David is saying, the Lord says to my Lord, who's David's Lord? And of course, Jesus is saying, it's me. I'm David's Lord. And so this psalm is a key psalm for Jesus' understanding of himself as a son of David, Lord of David. It gets, like I said, quoted very similar. I mean, it's a a little different. You know, when you read them, they're slightly different, but they quote the verse. So, so listen to this. Psalm chapter 110, verse one. I'm going to write this down. It gets referred to 16 times in the New Testament. Chapter 110, verse 1, 16 times there's a reference. Three of those to this Jesus saying, quoting, the Lord said to my Lord. The rest of them are all references to this whole idea of seated at the right hand with the enemies under the feet. Let's go back to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now this next phrase is huge. Until I make your enemies your foot. So Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father until the Father puts all things under Him. He's seated at God's right hand, and all the enemies are under him, and he's the ruler, the king over all. Listen to the references in the New Testament to this concept. Because it's all throughout the New Testament, 13 times. And that all comes from Psalm 110, verse 1. Hebrews one thirty to the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand. Matthew 26.64, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Ephesians 1.20, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Colossians three one, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Hebrews one three, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Hebrews eight one, one who is seated at the right hand. Hebrews, 12, he sat down at the right hand of God. Hebrews twelve two, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews ten thirteen, waiting from the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. First Corinthians fifteen twenty five. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet ephesians one twenty two and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church hebrews two eight putting in subjection under his feet first peter three twenty two who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, so I'm just trying to highlight and emphasize a theme that runs throughout the New Testament that all comes back, Psalm 110, verse 1, a very key verse, a very key psalm that, that produces a lot of theology and content for the New All right, I'll, I'll pause there. Any thoughts or questions on any of that? Okay, verse 3, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments, From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Revelation 19.14, I think, has this verse in mind. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. A lot of the imagery from Revelation comes from the Old Testament. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That verse is going to get referenced nine times eight of them from Hebrews, one of them from John, John 12, 34. Verse 5 is going to get referenced twice in the New Testament. Verse 6 is going to get referenced Revelation 19. So there are certain kingship psalms that clearly point to Christ. Psalm 110 is one of them. But really, I made the argument on Sunday, we should be reading all of the Bible with some view of Christ in mind, You know, whether it's... Lament Psalms, Thanksgiving Psalms, we, we read the Bible as Christians. That doesn't mean that we can't understand the original context. It doesn't mean the original context is unimportant. It's very important. Uh, but we, we read all of the Bible through the lens of we're Christians. Uh, so let me just, this is the final question. Why is it important that we read the Bible as Christians, that we consider all of the Bible in relationship to Jesus as it relates to Him? Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah.
0: Revealed, yeah, right. Concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New, yeah, right on. Yeah, that's a good point. One big storyline. If we have one author, if we believe God's the ultimate author, there's going to be continuity. And what's the center piece or center message of the the story? We we believe it's Christ, and so I, I agree with you. Sometimes we just think. Well, it's either just in the past or there's just a a principle to be gleaned and that's it. There's certainly principles, but it's also, there's more. Any other thoughts on why it's important to read the whole Bible? It should ship to Jesus.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. yeah yeah that's a good point the New Testament can help us read the Old Testament and there are things that I would never catch or see in a lot of ways Like, would we have got all that from Psalm 110 verse 1 if the New Testament wasn't telling us all that probably not Good thought. I, can't, I think there's a famous line. Spurgeon had a famous line. I think he was talking about preaching. So it's something about you, you make a beeline to the cross. You know, always make a beeline to the cross. That's kind of always in the back of my mind. Like at some point, I got to make a beeline to the cross. And for me, it's always important to not just do it as kind of an add-on. Like not kind of go back to this rote. Like I don't know, say the exact same thing. I want to organically. Say, how does how does this text organically point us to Christ? In a way that's being faithful to the text and being faithful to the gospel. Some, sometimes people go to the gospel, but they sort of leave it all behind. So how do you keep, which is not, not always, not always easy. Sometimes it takes a little brainstorming.
1: Right.
0: yeah that's a good point that's a good point uh, for those in the back she said there's a kind of apologetic aspect of just when you demonstrate the continuity it helps people who may not be believers to go oh I see the continuity there is one author here it's not just a bunch of disconjointed unrelated to each other Yeah. 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 Good point. He's the he's the center of our faith, and so we, we better be viewing everything through the lens of of Christ. Yeah. Good point. Okay. Any other thoughts? Questions? Anybody willing to pray for us?
1: Anybody? Thanks, Paul.